Today's episode of The Movies That Made Her But Not Me is sponsored by FilmCred. Providing new film critics and writers in-depth feedback on their writing, FilmCred is made up of a community of collaborators dedicated to publishing insightful reviews, interviews, video essays, and coverage of film festivals. Visit film-cred.com to learn more. So before we get into the episode, we're doing a mini episode because last night I watched American Psycho with two resident American Psycho experts and young men, Wanchi and Jacob. And this was not a movie that resonated with me very much at all, but I was made aware that for young men in my generation, this is the movie. This is their classic, their film. So I wanted to have them on the podcast so we could all discuss it. Ed Gein said about women? Ed Gein, maitre d' canal bar? No, serial killer, Wisconsin in the 50s. And what did Ed say? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out and talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And what the other part of him think? <laughs> what her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> the movie is American Psycho. Starring Christian Bale, this cult classic is set in the 1980s and follows Patrick Bateman, a rich socialite who works as an investment banker. Bateman has a second life as a serial killer who murders homeless people, prostitutes, blonde women, and his rival, Paul Allen. Will he be caught? Did any of it actually happen? That's what we intend to find out. The year is 2000. George W. Bush was elected president following a controversial recount in Florida that triggered the Supreme Court to get involved. The final Peanuts comic strip was published in February. AOL and Time Warner merged. Hillary Clinton was elected to the U.S. Senate. And this was also the year that I was born. So, guys, starting with Jacob, tell me about the first time that you saw American Psycho. So I had kind of, I'm not a huge cinema guy, to be completely honest. Um, I had a very unconventional introduction to American Psycho. I found it through clips that were suggested to me on YouTube. So I went through and I constructed what I thought to be the order of the actual movie, uh, just watching it on YouTube clips, uh, which I turned out to be very wrong about. And I was really just attracted by this uh, very, like, stylized world that was created by the movie uh and then eventually when i saw it for the first time it just really it really drew me in washi i watched the movie for the first time uh when it was on netflix around 2015 but then i thought it and i saw it and i thought about it and i enjoyed it but i didn't think about it for a long time until one of my friends another one of the young men who really uh, seems very drawn to the cult classic aspect of it. Um, showed me at a sleepover, I think my sophomore year of high school, and we all watched American Psycho and didn't sleep too much that night. And uh, so I really enjoyed it, and I think this is my third time watching it now. Uh, as I said, I saw it for the first time last night, and I, I don't know. I think that if I hadn't watched it with the two of you, I wouldn't have thought 
really anything of it. I would have just been like, yeah, all right, that was cool. That was a movie that was made in 2000. Awesome. And I probably would have moved on. I don't know. It didn't really hit me in the same way. You guys said you've seen it more than once. Um, and Jacob, I thought it was really interesting how you said that you watched it in in YouTube clips before you saw the actual movie because when I do the podcast with Lauren, we always talk about like different ways you can watch the movie. And I think that's super um funny and also generational. I'd love to hear Lauren's take on watching clips of a movie on YouTube before you actually see the movie. <laughs> so yeah, how, how has it changed um, the more times you guys have watched it? It's become more impactful to you or how, how has it affected you? I would say that uh, it's really helped me pick up on more details every time I watch it. It's an incredibly detailed oriented film. Um, they're hidden jokes because the movie, although it, it's kind of a hidden comedy in a sense, uh, and it, I really mean that hidden. If you don't know it's a comedy, you might think of it as like a horror movie or a tragedy. And I think as I watch it, each time I pick up on more and more things where I'm like, oh, you know, this was that funny th thing that happened in this scene that I didn't know happened. And I just really finding out more and more uh, deeply hidden things within the movie. Right, like the order that the movie. That's right, yeah, the order. <laughs> yeah, and I think one thing that surprised me a lot is after you watch it the first time, you are surprised by the horror aspects of the film. So when a murder happens or something particularly gruesome, you're still caught in that fear. But you already know to expect it by your second watching, so you can, that, that fear aspect is no longer there and you can just focus on what's funny about this and what's the dark comedy around it all and um you're no longer on the edge of your seat um you know terrified of who he's gonna kill next right so we're talking about the there's so many themes in this movie like the comedy aspects of it the murder horror aspects of the movie and you know i think that something that's interesting about the movie um is how they take all of those different aspects and mesh them together like it's kind of an interesting horror comedy is a really interesting genre to me how you can have both of it and it's not a parody right so there's other movies like a scream that's a horror comedy but it's a parody of horror movies and this isn't this is just a comedy and a horror film that are put together the more we talked about it and i talked to the move to you guys about the movie i was like oh wait do i actually like this movie maybe uh, I, maybe i like it more than i originally thought that i did because you guys brought up some really interesting points so maybe we can start with with the horror aspects the the murders I, it's not really a parody of of the more gruesome genres as much as it is of an era um i would say the murders it's not honestly it's not that much focus on violence in a, in a gruesome sense i mean there are many murders Babin kills a uh, number of women, but like with the homeless guy early on in the film, it's a very dark setting is he just uses a knife and you don't really see anything and the guy's body falls over. It's like, whatever. And then later, like he kills some women and they're covered by bed sheets. Uh, at the end of the film, when he kills the prostitute, he drops the chainsaw down the flight of stairs and she just kind of dies. It's like, there's, it's a very violent film, but in sort of a, a hidden way. It's interesting that you said that it was violent, but it wasn't gruesome. Yeah. Because the movie originally was rated NC-17, mm -hmm. which is like the worst rating that you can get. I don't know if we're just desensitized to it. Like maybe if it was getting rated now, it wouldn't be rated so and horribly. One thing that's interesting about that is that they didn't have to re-edit the whole movie or do 
um, substantial reshoots, they only had to cut 18 seconds to go from a NC-17 rating to an R rating. So there's this big question of what was in those 18 seconds and how gruesome must that have been. Any guesses? Oh, about what they cut? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had an idea um, because in... This is probably, I don't know what the term would be, probably like the, the final act of the film uh, when Bateman is having his uh, chase with the police and he runs up to his office and calls his lawyer um, and lists through all of the people that he's murdered. And uh, he said, like, I cooked a little bit and I ate part of their brains. So <laughs> when I saw that line last night, I was like, I wonder if they show him like butchering and cooking the people and eating them. And that's what they cut. Oh, that's pretty... I, You know, honestly, out of all the things that... I mean, there are so many things going on. I, that line didn't even register with me. Mm. So maybe that's one of the... I need to watch it again <laughs> to pick up on that stuff. <laughs> so, okay. This movie is very generational, right? Because it's a movie that takes place in the 80s, but it comes out in 2000, and we're watching it in 2022. So there's, like, lots of degrees of separation um, from the movie. How do you guys think the themes of uh, greed is good and consumerism and gray flannel suit typed men. How do you think that that uh, is relevant to us as a society today? I think one thing that's interesting is this movie was briefly going to be directed by Oliver Stone, who directed um, Wall Street and that greed is good mentality movie. And he was going to take this on. Um, And I find it really fascinating Well, also, when I first watched it, I thought it was a movie from the 80s. I thought that I didn't really know how old Christian Bale was. So I thought, maybe he's a little bit older than I thought. And he was just really young in 1985. And this was a contemporary movie. Um, But it has that satire about yuppies and about how um, just how impersonal and what a lack of personality all of these people on Wall Street and individuality they have. Do you think they still lack personality? Yeah. <laughs> and is that why the movie is is still so so relatable? Well, now we went from real Wall Street to like R slash Wall Street bets. And I think that, you know, you can get into how that this renaissance of American Psycho, I think in part happened just because it became a cult classic under the normal ways. But then I think there was the meme way that it became a cult classic. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was driven a lot by social media websites like Reddit that people saw some really brilliant, funny formats uh, in this film. They thought, wow, that was a really funny scene. We can do something with that. And what's so funny is that on the other side of Reddit, you have kind of this whole new generation of quote-unquote sort of Wall Street traders that um, are trying to make money, but it feels very impersonal and very much just going with the flow of everyone, and they're very interchangeable and impersonal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my connection to the film um, is kind of interesting because canonically, Patrick Bateman is two years older than my father, so that's kind of the era in which he was growing up, so that's sort of my connection that I have to that. As Wanchi mentioned, uh, of the greater way that the stock market has been, and finance generally, has been playing in mainstream culture, which kind of ebbs and flows, now we're at a peak for that. I'd also say the kind of cold-heartedness with which uh, Bateman and the other investment bankers at Pearson Pierce, where they all work in the film, they have very similar to the kind of like FU Silicon Valley people like money or nothing kind of uh, move that we're making in our society now. 
um, which that kind of goes along with some of the themes that I found really fascinating in the movie. So it follows the yuppie culture of the 1980s. Patrick Bateman is in extreme construction. He takes like every perfect part of the like kind of alpha male of the 1980s and makes it a part of who he is. There really is no Patrick Bateman, as they say in the film. Uh, one of the things that really stood out to me in that was the, his classic catchphrase excuse of, I have to return some videotapes. I have to return some videotapes. Uh, when he breaks up his, with his fiance in, the, in the, the restaurant, he has the reason why he leaves is because he has to return some videotapes. I have to return some videotapes. When he's with uh, Louis Carruthers, in the bathroom, the reason why he leaves is because he has to return some videotapes. I have to return some videotapes. And what's really fascinating about that is that what the thought process is, is like, I need to have a reason. Like, when people leave conversations, they have an excuse. I need to have an excuse to leave a conversation. What is it considered an acceptable excuse? Something that is rather benign and people do regularly. And like, returning videotapes... Yeah, that's like people do that in the 1980s, but it should. The part that's left out from this sort of psychotic line of thought is that it has to make sense uh, in the context. But it's just sort of such an attempt, it's such a superficial attempt at being like a quote unquote normal person that it's just, it becomes comical. I think we should say all the meme lines lines from the movie. <laughs> I think that every time we say, I need to return some videotapes, we play. A cl- an audio clip of Patrick Bateman saying, I need to return some videotapes. <laughs> I think videotapes. that would be really good. I have to return some videotapes. There's lots of of themes of the 1980s, which is why I think it's so fascinating that, you know, everybody is relating to this movie now because it does feel so 80s. Like I think Wanchi was saying, like he thought the movie was made in the 80s <laughs> because it is very 80s. Like even the way it's shot, I mean... And I think that that is credit to the filmmakers. They did a great job. But is it is it themes that are making you guys really fascinated by this film? Or is it subject matter? Like, are you guys like, oh, it's, you know, investment banking. And I find that really relatable and interesting. Or is it, you know, is it more like these shells of people who all look the same and sound the same and have the same business cards and are competing to be the best? Is, is that what is is drawing you to the film? I think the movie is led by a lot of really clever performances. I mean, the cast is really stacked. You have Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Reese Witherspoon, and some other people who you recognize. And they then kind of bring their all to these slightly absurdist scenes where uh, Christian Bale is just going crazy throughout the whole thing. And he's saying these insane lines like, I have to return some videotapes. I have to return some videotapes. All the time. So that's off the bat, just really compelling. But then there's all these very clever ways that the filmmakers shot it that um, keeps it, keeps little tidbits throughout. So for example, there's this interrogation scene where Willem Dafoe playing the detective comes to uh, interview Christian Bale's Patrick Bateman character. And they shot that scene three different ways. One in which Willem Dafoe wasn't sure if he'd uh, if Patrick Bateman had killed um, Paul Allen, one in which he believed that he'd killed him, and one in which he really didn't believe they killed him. And then they re-edited that with all kind of shuffled around. Um, so 
you're constantly confused as you're watching the scene whether he's suspicious of him or not because he seems to be going really back and forth. Um, and I didn't know that before I watched the scene, and I will say I was confused because in some shots of him, the way he's saying something, you're like, no, he's leading him on. And then he'll say something else, and you're like, oh, he's just being nice, I guess. And, <laughs> and I really was confused, yeah. and then you told me that, and I was like, oh, very clever. Like, that definitely, that definitely read. But okay, so why do you think, why make Patrick Bateman a serial killer? Why combine the comedy and absurdism of investment banking with serial killer by night murdering prostitutes on the street? Why put those two things together? I think that it's a balance between the purest distillation of capitalism and human barbarity in the way that those two storms are kind of fighting each other within one character. And that battle is interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. There's so many fascinating aspects of psychology because at the end you're wondering, well, did he really do these things? And is society so you know, so cruel and so interchangeable that they don't even realize that Paul Allen or these homeless people or these prostitutes are missing because all of these bankers look the same and nobody cares about these underprivileged people and no one's looking for them and the only person that's looked for is apparently in London. Um, or, alternatively, if this was all within Patrick Bateman's head and if it's all within his head, you're then still thinking, oh, this is a really sick person who's living this really wonderful, seemingly um, well-adjusted life overall. Um, and, you know, he says he's not really there, but is this going on in everyone's head? Do they have, you know, these terrible uh, thoughts? Or, you know, is he only just doing this in his notebook, doing those little drawings where his secretary finds at the end of the movie? Um, or is human nature that evil and that terrible? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so at the end of the movie, you find out that maybe none of it actually happened at all because Patrick Bateman goes to his lawyer, who he confessed to, and says, I wasn't joking, that was a real confession. I killed Paul Allen. And his lawyer says, no, you didn't. I know you didn't because I just had lunch with him 10 days ago. And you're kind of like, well, did he actually kill Paul Allen? Or was... Paul Allen, somebody else actually who just looked like Paul Allen and like everybody is all the same and so he killed somebody else and so everyone's confused or did none of it happen at all? So I guess my first question is, do you guys think he actually killed these people in Paul Allen? Like, what do you think of the twist ending? Um, I think that... I believe the lawyer. I think that the whole Paul Allen storyline is not did not occur because it's a really fascinating way. Like Bateman is one of the least reliable narrators I've ever seen in a movie. So to the point, as Minna mentioned, is like what even happened? Um, I think some evidence can honestly be found with uh, one of the sort of important secondary characters of the movie, who's a prostitute that Bateman hires regularly to participate in his shenanigans. I mean, kind of the ways that she acts. I mean, obviously she's motivated by money, but it seems like very irrational. Like she's constantly being beat up by this guy. And it's like, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could talk about power dynamic, but it's like, she could just not go to that street corner where he always picks her up every time. <laughs> so it's like, she's not acting rationally. So I think that <laughs> there's a lot of like, a lot of people who do some very convenient things to make the story work well. So 
Absolutely. And I think there's this interesting aspect where a lot of his murders are believable. You know, the homeless person is believable when he stabs a homeless person in an alleyway or when he, um, or one of the prostitute deaths. But then there's this scene where it seems like Patrick Bateman, whether he's been crazy the whole time or whether he hasn't been, whether he's been honest or not, somehow it, it goes into fantasy and it goes into something more unbelievable because he goes to an ATM and he sees a kitten by his feet and he picks it up and then the ATM reads, feed me stray cat. And he tries to push the cat into the card reader. <laughs> and, um, and an old woman comes up to him and says, what are you doing? And he kills her. And then there's these police start chasing him and he blows up two cop cars. <laughs> and he then does that confession. And instead of saying, oh, I killed a few prostitutes, um, he says, I killed 30, maybe 40 people. I also ate their brains. He did even more than we thought he'd done. Mm -hmm. And so now we're thinking, okay, this is a little bit much. It's believable that he could get away with three, four, five murders, maybe. But like now you're getting to this pretty extraordinary level where you're like two cop cars were just blown up in the middle of New York and and there's just a spree. So now you're starting to wonder, well, maybe this this is fantasy. Maybe this is just, you know, either magic realism or just something way too fantastical. I would say the, the, the central question is, is this real? And within the movie, it doesn't really matter because it's being told from the perspective of Patrick Bateman. He thinks it's real for sure. We know that. That's why he's so confused when everyone's like, what are you talking about? So I think that that's his reality. So it doesn't really matter if it's not real or not for him. When we were talking about this earlier, which, spoilers, we talked about this movie <laughs> before. We were um, inspired. Wanji, <laughs> uh, you were talking about Jekyll and Hyde and putting yeah. that on screen. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about Jekyll and Hyde, the book, I'm not sure if it was a, a, a newspaper, like, serial beforehand or what, but um, it, because it was written in text the fact that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were the same person was a surprise because you hadn't seen them already. And that became really hard to do for film because, first of all, everyone would get that Dr. Jekyll Hyde and Mr. Hyde are the same person because they would be looking at them on screen for the whole movie. Um, and that's why Fight Club was really brilliant as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptation was because they cast his split personalities as two different people. American Psycho kind of brought it back, but in not exactly the same way. People don't really refer to it as the same story, but more about this um, split, not even split personality, but delusional mentality. The way that I would think about it, first of all, I think it's really interesting that this came out really shortly after The Matrix, which has those themes of what is real, what's a dream. And um, there's a really good Keanu Reeves interview recently where he was really struck by someone that he was talking about the matrix with it was a little girl and he said well the whole thing is about whether reality is is real or not or whether he's living his real rea his true reality and the little girl said um does it even really matter and um that really stuck with him and very much to jake's point it's like um does if you're living in that um reality where you killed all these people we really have to think about that the reality of the film that we're seeing mm-hmm yeah, I mean, they did Jekyll and Hyde in American Psycho 
also that was something that I thought was shot really, really well was they would shoot like two responses of Bateman to something that was being said to him. Like I know there's a scene right in the beginning of the movie where he's getting drinks from a bar and he's like looking into a mirror at himself past the bartender and he's like screaming at her and then she turns around and he's like, thank you for the drinks. Then they do it again when he's breaking up with his fiance and she asks him a question and he yells <laughs> yeah. at her and then yeah. he says it normal. My favorite is when he's in one of the clubs and one of the women asks him, oh, so what do you do? And he says, uh, well, I enjoy murders and executions. And she says, oh, my brother works in that. And, and he's, he's like, tell me more about that. She says, yeah, he loves mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, that was a good one, too. I, don't, I think that just goes to show, I mean, same with like, I mean, because the Fight Club, there's two different people, and that's why we get fooled into believing that there are two different people, because that's what we're shown. And this is like, we're seeing that there's one person, but everybody else is so uh, involved with themselves and hearing what they want to hear, like that woman, and, you know, confused because all the men who work at this firm are, you know, all vice president, they all have the same business card, they all look exactly the same. And only we can see that there's two of him inside his body. And that's kind of what gives us a point of difference than the characters in the movie as an audience member. At the acting on a physical level of Christian Bale, I felt like the way that he flexes his... This is going to oh. sound really weird. <laughs> you like all the nudity in no, the No, no, okay, no. <laughs> the way that he flexes his face in the movie, like, it, you can see the stress that's happening. Like, his, his veins are popping in, like, really weird spots. Like, his forehead is, like, all screwed up, and there's, like, a vein underneath his eye that pops when he's, like, talking to Willem Dafoe in the restaurant. And I just found that to be really interesting. This All the sweat is actually real. Uh... Christian Bale taught himself how to sweat on command so right. that when he Patrick Beeman was stressed during scenes, he could just, like, I guess, do, like, flex super hard or whatever. <laughs> the sweat in American Psycho on Christian Bale's part is real. The, the flex, yeah, it's very Jim Carrey, like, doing the Grinch, right? Yeah. And I think that one thing that's interesting is that, to me, the mark of a great actor isn't that you've been in the most highest-grossing movies or that you've been in many roles but that you've been, how many personalities can you take on? And how great can you be in the movies that you're in, whether they're bad or good? And I think that what's really interesting is that, yeah, I think the highest grossing um, Christian Bale films are undoubtedly the Batman franchise and the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, But I don't think that's his greatest acting performances. I think he was great in them. But I think that you look at, I will also make an argument for Vice, <laughs> um, but you you know watching this this and watching Vice and then watching Batman and you know maybe then watching Newsies, you're like, wow, this guy really can take on a bunch of different, very huge range of characters, and some of them are sociopathic and horrible and murder machines, and some of them are superheroes and people that you're obviously I'm talking about uh, Dick Cheney as a superhero. <laughs> this is my podcast. Why don't you are not Sorry. allowed to say good things about Vice while you're <laughs> But um, yeah, you're watching um, the Batman films and you're like, you know, rooting for him. And uh, well, I mean, in some ways, like Jake said, um, it, when you watch um, American Psycho, he is a somehow a sympathetic villain, no matter how horrible he is. You, he's a nice guy. He's a nice, and everyone. I mean, it's funny. Like 
he's the one that's like saying, hey, you really cut it out with the anti-Semitism, yeah. anti-Semitic remarks, um, or being, you know, feminist in, in some scenes. And you take that and you think, well, you know, in some ways these other people are worse or, or, or more mean. Um, they're not killing 40 people, but, you know. But they Real should. feminists murder women. <laughs> and um, I, I, one question that I would have is, I think, you know, to use a very, you know, online term, this movie is full of NPCs. NPC being, um, you know, in a video game uh, would mean a non-playable character. So you might be able to take over the main character and play as them or change and play as another character. An NPC would be someone that you could not play as. They're kind of just a secondary person that you pass by and doesn't, you know, maybe they have a line or two, but then they stop existing and when you walk away from them. And it's very sad. Or expendable. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. you know, the movie starts out with him saying, I'm really not there. And this whole idea of I'm not a person and I don't really exist. And maybe that like life is a dream or something. But what does it mean to be a human and to kind of like say, you know, to demand that you have a um, individuality? Um, but it's not just Patrick Bateman that doesn't have an individual persona. If you're kind of looking at the whole cast and you're like, you don't feel for anyone. You're like, he's cheating on his fiance. But you're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, she doesn't really, see, she doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to care. Everybody's cheating on each other. Everyone's interchangeable. Um, you know, do you think there are any like real people in the movie? Um, my argument would be that I think the secretary is the most mm. um, fleshed out person. Um, and the only person that you really feel for and are worried about. Because I feel like some of the other people you watch and get murdered, you're like, you don't care about Paul Allen, you know? It's like, he's going to die, but you're like, yeah, he's kind of mean. So what? Um, he's He seems so rude. <laughs> um, but then she's the, the only person that you really like, oh my God, get out of there. So the most horror film moment where you're just like, please don't kill her. You know, I hope she escapes. Yeah, when she's in his apartment. Do you want me to go? I don't think I can control myself. I know I should go. I know I have a tendency to get involved with unavailable men. And, I mean, do you want me to go? I think if you stay, something bad will happen. I would say that um, kind of the most NPC non-player character that I saw in the movie was the woman with whom Bateman has an affair. She's on so many like psychological drugs. She's constantly like, just like uh, kind of slurring her words and like, is seems like she's exhausted all the time. So it's like, she is quite literally not in control, even within the context of the movie. Cause I think as Wanchi mentioned, everyone is such a construction that they don't really have any part of the real self. I think that someone, it, there is a character in the movie who t maintains a part of his real self, but is making the transition towards NPC, and that is Louis Carruthers, uh, <laughs> who whose girlfriend is the woman with whom uh, Babin has the affair. But I think that he he's just he just wants to be loved, and he's looking for friends, and everyone just respects him, and it's very sad. But uh, I think he's another character who still has some amount of humanity. So. You know, I was saying that this movie didn't like resonate with me. Why do you think that this movie specifically has resonated so much with young men? I know we've talked about um, 
Reddit and online communities and stuff like that coming back to the movie. But I don't see that as much with the online communities of young women. Like, I mm. don't think that this would be a movie that a lot of young women would be fangirls of <laughs> and be, you know, wanting to watch over and over and over again. So why do you think that this movie has struck such a chord with young men of this generation? I would say because Patrick Bateman is kind of like the ultimate cool guy. Like, honest, like obviously he's... A murderous psychopath but he's still cool they do a great job of making him like a lovable villain in this movie i mean he's devoted himself to becoming yeah that ultimate cool guy he lives in a great apartment he has a, a nice job where he makes tons of money uh i mean he like works out a lot he's really cool um but it's really it's kind of a shallow construction i think he, yeah he just kind of wants he's sort of the personification of like sort of stereotypical male aspirations that's what i say i think another thing that i find interesting another theory is if the 80s are being criticized for being so impersonal and that everyone is really interchangeable or that everyone's wearing a mask because they're all these you know yuppies that are trying to make a bunch of money and they're really not that smart they really you know they think really highly of themselves but they all are getting confused for each other and um none of them really have an individual idea of themselves. Um, I think that there's this really interesting like post-internet case for saying, well, you know, that was 10 years before the internet became ubiquitous, but now in the 2010s with social media, with, you know, especially on Reddit where it's not even, you know, you as a person having an account, it's really just usernames and randos. Um, then it becomes this interesting case of, is it that there's this appeal of thinking, oh, you know, he really doesn't have a personality or he has a facade or um, there's this, you really don't know who I am. Um, does, is that an aspect? And then there's the memes. And then separately, this is a mm -hmm. meme-rich film. Yes. It is a gold mine, and by meme connoisseurs, it is really adored. Mm-hmm. All right. So now I have to ask a question that we ask of all movies. Is it a classic? In a, among a certain demographic, yes. Among the traditional Hollywood types, there is no argument that it would be. Uh, as Wanchi mentioned, if you scroll through any social media site, you will find a Patrick Bateman profile picture eventually. That <laughs> cannot be said of really any other movie. I mean, there there are there are some, of course, but. From the, you know, no one has a Citizen Kane uh, profile picture. <laughs> I do. <laughs> not to say that, no, I'm not implying that American Psycho is a better movie than Citizen Kane. You can. Please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking the stance. But yeah, even scrolling through, you know, I think there was a moment uh, five, seven years ago where it maybe it had its online renaissance and it started being part of memes. But then it just kept growing. And I saw, you know, two come up on my feed organically today. Um, I hadn't searched up American Psycho yet or anything like that. Just something a friend sent me. <laughs> and so it really has this interesting stranglehold on the culture um, in an interesting way because they've been in such... All of these actors have been in way more high-grossing films. Um, the Batman, only a few years later, with Christian Bale. Um and Willem Dafoe has a lot of Spider-Man memes, in fairness, but um, uh, it it comes out to be a really uh, excellent um, format for everything. And uh, 
I think some of the memes are really beautiful. <laughs> I think that's an interesting point that you bring up. I'm just, I'm kind of paraphrasing and adding a bit on what you said. Like, there have been many movies that these actors were a part of that were much higher grossing, but I, I mean, maybe with Willem Dafoe as an exception, like, I don't think that any movie has had a greater cultural impact for these actors than American Psycho. Yeah, um, I think, and also it's like, maybe that's only true for young men, you know? I don't know, because maybe... Some folks would say, no, Reese Witherspoon's biggest role was Legally Blonde. It wasn't American Psycho. Um, or with Willem Dafoe, was it The Lighthouse? Was it Spider-Man? Uh, was it Spider-Man? Nah, Jared Leto has had so many movies um, in the past 20 years. But like you talked about with, um, with the Avatar episode, just because you're the highest grossing, just because you make the most money and the most eyeballs saw your film, that doesn't mean that you're going to be remembered equally. And... No one, no one really makes Avatar memes. You know that's not a part of culture, even though it was watched on a gross level. Um, I think you know it. It grossed a hundred times more than American Psycho. Oh, probably more than that. So I think it made like thirty million. Avatar made like three billion. So yeah, like a hundred <laughs> times more. And um, but no one's seeing like, oh yeah, the Navi people. That's a classic meme format that we use every day. Um, you know, it's been totally forgotten in the past. You know, maybe that come that changes with Avatar Two: The Way of the Water coming to cinemas in December. But please, no ads for Avatar yeah. Two. Watchy is brought to you by the Avatar Company. Um, but um, but it's it's really fascinating how those cult classics occur. I mean, and you can you can make that case about a lot of movies. There are also a bunch of memes. I saw this around the same time with my friends as we saw The Room which also didn't make any no. money, was even lower budget, and you really didn't know anyone in that movie, unlike American Psycho. But now, I mean, um, there are so many lines that are remembered from the room and that are used, and a bunch of things that um, now are just part of internet culture. So you can have a second life online. Um, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting trend with the movies that we do that impact a, a Gen Z generation. Um, having a second life on the internet is a really big part of keeping those movies alive and, and having a big culture impact for them. I, I remember, Jacob, when we had a conversation about this movie a long time ago, way before I saw it, and you said that we should do it on the podcast because it was a classic, and I said, never, it's not a classic. Um, I think that after I saw the movie and we talked about it, I see more now the cultural impact that it has had, and I'm going to change my stance. I think it is a classic. Ah, <laughs> this is huge for me. <laughs> You're welcome. And I think it's a classic because I think classic movies have a lasting impact, they have a cultural impact, and they have impact on multiple, multiple generations of people. And I know technically... It's not really multiple generations if the movie came out in 2000, but it's about the 80s, so I think it can it can apply to multiple generations of people. You know, explaining one generation and impacting a different generation. I think I think that the movie's uh, impact and the subject matter and the themes that it takes on. I think it I think it is a classic. One interesting thing is that right, you know, American Psycho is taking place about you know, less than 20 years after um, 
after its subject matter, and now it's been 22 years, so our American Psycho would be about the year 2000. Right. So ah. we should make a film about the making of American <laughs> Psycho. What about this? What would be the modern American Psycho? Hmm, the Social Network by David Fincher. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, a horror comedy, The Social Network. A horror comedy about Mark Zuckerberg's created a creation of a hell site. Noted serial killer Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I'm not really there. Um, I would like you guys to do an edit of The Social Network with all of the murders from <laughs> American Psycho. Just like a super cut. It's just Mark Zuckerberg running back to his, his dorm room. They're like, Mark, where were you? You were invent- You know, we have to invent Facebook. He's like, I needed to return some videotapes. <laughs> I have to return some videotapes. All right. Well, thank you guys for being on this very special mini episode of the movies that made him, but not me. I appreciate you both coming on the podcast and talking with us about it. And now, now we have another classic to add to our list. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.